0: passage uh, for this morning is from Acts 19, uh, 8 through 34. And he entered the synagogue, and for three three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there... I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, great as Artemis of the Ephesians.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, you promised your presence with us, Father, and that uh, your presence... Uh, affects not only uh, our hearts and our minds, uh, but it affects the, the deepest and most intimate places of our lives. So, Father, speak to us here this morning because we need uh, to hear your voice today, Father. Speak to us in your word. Draw us closer to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, when we were uh, hanging out in the house yesterday, uh, one of my my uh, children found a coin and brought it up to me it was not a it was not a normal coin he brought it up to me and he said daddy where where is this coin from and I looked at the coin and it was one of the old tokens from the Garden State Parkway in New Jersey okay they don't use this anymore but they did I guess a long time ago and my son said to me daddy is this from a foreign country and I had to pause for a minute before I even answered that question as to whether that was a foreign country at all, made me think about uh, the first time uh, my wife and I started dating. My wife is, is from New Jersey, and uh, I've told her this before, and I asked her permission before I told you about it, is uh, when we first started dating, uh, I was most unsure about our relationship surviving than any other dating relationship I'd had before then. Now, I felt that way because we were just really different. I was this kid that was born and raised in Baltimore, and and she was this girl who was born and raised in North Jersey, and we were just incredibly different. And uh, that came out with one of the first times I went and uh, visited her family up in uh, northern New Jersey. They lived 30 minutes west of of Manhattan. So the first time that we went up and visited, uh, she took me into New York City, and it was the first time I'd ever been to New York City. And uh, my whole frame of reference from New York City was what I watched on TV. And if you watched TV back then, every crime drama, every kind of like villainy superhero movie all took place in New York City. So she said that when, I, when she first took me to New York City, I was like a paranoid personality. I was afraid that every corner I turned around, somebody was going to stick us up and I was going to have to defend our wife. And she said it it was the worst when we took a a taxi cab. I'd just seen a movie about some guy that got murdered in a taxi cab in New York City and I was scared to death. But over the years, uh, as we dated for a long time, obviously, uh, she began to take me back and back to New York City, and my, my guards started to let down, and I started to, to really like New York. I started to, to, to learn its story and to learn its identity. Of course, its story was very, very different than Baltimore. It still is. But it reminded me that every city has its story, doesn't it? Every city has uh, its history. Every city has its heroes. every city has its its villains, and all those things make up each city 's personality and its identity. But all cities we 've seen, all cities have tremendous influence. The second half of the book of Acts uh, follows a, an urban church planting initiative. Uh, that was really spearheaded by jesus 's first followers, these were jesus 's followers that uh, that took on his mission after Jesus returned back into heaven and If you look at the second half of the book of Acts, what they did is they traveled from city to city, and as they traveled from city to city, that the message of the gospel remained the same. But how they applied that message to the different story of all the cities they went to, of the the different narratives they interacted with, was very, very different. But every city was hard. Every city they went to presented difficulties. Every city they went to presented challenges. And often the spread of this gospel message is powerful, but it often is really, really hard. Teddy Roosevelt uh, famously said this, he said, Nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, and difficulty. He said, I've never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. Instead, I've envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. You see, the gospel, as it went to all these different cities, it changed lives in all these different cities that it went to. But it also faced pain and it faced difficulty and it faced opposition almost every place that it went. This morning, what I'd like to do just over the next few minutes is look at the opposition that the gospel faced in one particular city, the city of Ephesus. And as we look at it, I think we'll start to identify the opposition they faced, but we'll also be able to identify some of the opposition that you and I face as we apply the gospel in our lives and as we seek to spread the gospel, whether it's here in the city of Baltimore or wherever life takes us. See, Paul, when he wrote back to this church in the, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, he identifies three particular sources of opposition that he ran into and you and I often run into uh, in our lives when it comes to the gospel. And those three sources of opposition he identified as the world, as the flesh, and as the devil. The first thing that you see in our passage, the first source of opposition you see, is the devil or the supernatural. And you can read about it really in verses 11 uh, to 19 in our narrative this morning. One of the things that the scriptures are pretty clear about is that there is a reality to life that is beyond what you and I can see and touch. There is a reality beyond the things that we can see with our physical eyes. The Bible's clear that there are things like angels and demons, that there is uh, a heaven, a real heaven, and there is a real hell. And the scriptures also talk about how there is some sort of cosmic struggle that exists between, uh, between the forces of God and the forces of the devil that all exist. And there is a spiritual element that seeks to actively resist the spread of the gospel in our world. In our passage, we read about this kind of crazy story about these uh, seven exorcists or these seven Jewish prophets. They're called the the seven sons of Sceva uh, in our passage. And they had heard that there was power behind the name of Jesus. Well, one of the things you have to know about the city of Ephesus is that the city of Ephesus was known for magic. I don't know if you like Harry Potter or reading the the Harry Potter books, but they talk all about magic. Well, in the ancient world, if you were interested in magic, you would go to the city of Ephesus. It had a fixation with all things magical. There was people that practiced magical arts and there were magic books and talismans that were all throughout the city. And as the gospel spread there, these Jewish magicians or these Jewish prophets began to hear about the name of Jesus and that there was power in the name of Jesus. So they wanted to begin to use that name in the practice of their own magic. Well, as our story tells us, because they they didn't use Jesus' name with respect and affection and with worship, that that power ended up turning against them in a really significant way. Our passage also talks uh, about how the Apostle Paul, when he was working in the city of Ephesus, performed all sorts of kind of indirect miracles. These were miracles that would happen purely by people touching Paul's handkerchief or by touching his clothes or by touching his apron. They they carried a particular healing power in the city of Ephesus. Well, Luke's point in telling us all these stories is to help us to see that, yes, there is supernatural or opposition or spiritual opposition to the message of the gospel. But at the end of the day, the power of Jesus and the power of of the name of Jesus and the gospel is far greater than any supernatural opposition that comes up against it. The second source of opposition that you see in our passage, you read about it in verses 23 to 27. And Paul talks about this opposition as the world, that there are elements that exist in this world that just tend to oppose the message of the gospel. If you've paid attention to the news at all this week, you've known that it has been a very uh, challenging week for our economy. The stock market uh, has been on a, a roller coaster ride. I think it opened up Monday and it was uh, down and then it recovered later in the week. And it just seemed to be this kind of up and down thing for our economy that existed this week. And and whenever this happens, people begin to panic, especially uh, folks in affluent areas or, or that have means uh, begin to get very stressed when they see uh, the economic markets doing what they did uh, this week. And that is because that in our culture, whenever economics seem to be threatened, people just tend to rush into a panic. Well, there's something that is particularly economic that is happening in the passage that we read about this morning. You see, the city of Ephesus was located on a a beautiful and very popular harbor. And for uh, much of its history, it was known to be a hub or a center of trade. It was a gateway into all of Asia. So anybody looking to connect with Asian countries would sail into the city of Ephesus, would, would dock there, begin to trade there, and would uh, have a certain amount of economic vitality because of Ephesus' location. But something really bad was happening in the city of Ephesus by the time Paul got there. And that was, through natural means, the, uh, the harbor at Ephesus was beginning to collapse. It was silting through all sorts of uh, different means and no longer could these major trade ships enter into the city of Ephesus in order to have trade. And because of that, the economy was beginning to collapse in Ephesus. They were having to find another way to center the economy of this great ancient city. If you've been around Baltimore long enough, or if you're a a generational person here in Baltimore, you'll know that uh, this city once had a lot more people than it does now. The city, in its economic heyday, uh, was a center for the steel industry. Bethlehem Steel was one of the, the number one employers in the city of Baltimore. And when that steel industry dried up in this city and Bethlehem Steel closed down, the major component that contributed to the economy of Baltimore City was now gone. And many people still think that Baltimore hasn't figured out what its economy is going to be based on now. Well, it's almost the exact same thing that happened in this ancient city of Ephesus. It was losing its harbor, so it had to find some other way to build its economy. So, what it began to do is it built its economy on one of its greatest assets, and that is this ancient temple to the goddess Artemis. This temple was one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. People would travel from all over to come see this temple because it was so uh, amazing and incredible and the temple and, and the the temple cult that was built around it was all centered around this shrine that many believed was a meteorite that fell from the heavens in the shape of a a goddess. And when this meteorite fell, they built a temple around it and they began worshiping this goddess of fertility, this goddess of Artemis. Now, most people believe that, that this meteorite was roughly about 400 feet tall and about 200 feet wide. So if you're looking for a frame of reference, if you go downtown in Baltimore's Inner Harbor and you see the World Trade Center, that is about how tall this idol to Artemis was. It was a massive structure. So the city of Ephesus began to build its economy around this, around this tourist economy, around this this shrine. People would sell uh, temple sacrifices for people to engage in. And silversmiths would create these silver shrines that they would sell all around this temple. And people could go and and worship Artemis. They'd see this great artifact. They'd want to buy a souvenir. And then they could go home and worship Artemis in their own home. And this was the center of the economy for the city of Ephesus when Paul arrives. So Paul arrives in Ephesus, he sets up camp, he begins to minister there. Our passage tells us that that he ministered there for roughly three years. And for that three-year period, he actually rented out a lecture hall and lectured for six hours a day, telling people about the Old Testament and telling people about Jesus and telling people about the gospel message. But part of the gospel message had very... Uh, very serious implications for the people of Ephesus because what Paul was telling them is that Artemis is not an object that is worthy of your worship. That life, spiritual life, true life can only be found in the worship of Jesus Christ. And this core message of the gospel was in direct conflict with the entire economic system of the city of Ephesus. One commentator wrote that when the gospel begins to have financial impact, then trouble will be right around the corner. And that was very true for Paul in our story. The passage tells us that Demetrius, who was a silversmith, one of the men that that made these shrines, and one of the men that made these souvenirs, realized that Paul's teaching was in direct conflict to his livelihood, that he was about to lose his wealth and his job if people continued to believe in Paul's message. So what he did is he stirred up people to oppose Paul. He stirred up an entire mob that would oppose Paul and his followers and oppose the message of Jesus Christ. And this riot that he stirred up ended up capturing the entire city. Our passage tells us that people began to to chant all throughout the city. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. And the thousands of people began to, to gather together and they walked down the Ar- Arcadian Way, which this was this 11-foot street in the city that was marbled and colonnaded on, uh, colonnaded on every side. And people began to shout and riot. And the passage tells us they entered into uh, the, the theater of, of Artemis back in Ephesus, a theater that held... 25,000 people. This theater was, was filled with people that were chanting, Great is Artemis of Ephesus for hours and hours. The passage tells us that they chanted this for two straight hours. Paul wanted to do what he always does. He wanted to rush into the riot. He wanted to to rush into the mob and begin to speak the message of Jesus. But his friends wouldn't let him. They said, Paul, you're going to die if you enter into this mob, if you enter into this riot. And so the message of the gospel faces a different sort of opposition. Yes, it faced a, a, a spiritual or a supernatural opposition, but it also faced an opposition from the world. It faced an opposition from the, the cultural system of the Ephesians. It it faced opposition from the world that they live in, and very often, even in our context, the gospel faces opposition from the world and the culture that we live in. In fact, we have to ask ourselves that maybe if the gospel is, isn't in some ways conflicting with the system of this world and our culture, then maybe we've lost sight of the gospel itself. We have to ask ourselves that maybe the reason that we don't face a lot of the persecution that we read about in the New Testament is because we've lost sight of how offensive the gospel even itself can be. But lastly, we see one other sort of opposition from our passage this morning. We read about it in verses 28 to 34. And that is we, we, we face opposition from the devil or the supernatural. We face opposition from the world, the cultural system. But mostly we face opposition from what Paul calls the flesh, which is just a fancy way of saying what is inside of us. You see, it's easy to think that our problems or all the opposition to this message of Jesus comes from outside of us, but what may be the greatest opposition to the gospel often comes from what's inside of us. A famous writer said that we have met the enemy and he is us. Have You ever heard that before? Often we become our own worst enemies in li- in our just our lives and our habits. But the same is true when it comes to the gospel. And that is that often we are the ones that most oppose the message of Jesus. You see, because humanity was born in sin, and because we perpetuate that sin every day by just our deeds done in rebellion against God— It's because of that that we've become actual enemies of God, the scriptures say. The scriptures tell us that that our very souls, which are enslaved to sin, resist God. And they resist his work in our lives. And it often manifests itself in one of two ways, depending on the person. For some people, it it manifests itself in just outward rebellion against God. They want to do what they want to do, when they want to do, they want to be their own gods, they want to go their own way, and anybody or any god that would impose any sort of category on their life, they just want to run in the opposite direction. But there's another way to oppose the message of the gospel, and that often comes, bizarrely enough, through our religion. If you read the New Testament, you'll discover that those who opposed Jesus and his followers most, were not the ones that were outwardly rebellious in their lives. It was those that were most religious. The Jewish religious elite were the ones, when Jesus was here, that had him betrayed and arrested and crucified. And in our passage, the most fervent worshippers of Artemis were the ones that ended up resisting the message of Jesus more than anyone else. See, what we realize is that those people that often feel like they have their lives together— those people who have worked hard on building their spiritual resume, those who have allowed their own spiritual pride and religiosity to cloud them from their true need for Jesus and their true, the true nature of them, their souls, those are the ones that often most reject the message of Jesus. Often our own religion or our own perceived goodness becomes the thing that causes us to resist Jesus in our hearts. That's why you and I need to be careful that we don't get caught up in our own righteousness, that we don't become impressed with our own status, because ultimately those things, if done even in subtle rebellion against God, they will end, us drive, they will end up driving us away from Jesus. So what was true in Paul's day is true of you and I as well. There are spiritual realities that resist the gospel. There, are, there is the world and the cultural systems that resist the message of the gospel. But perhaps the greatest resistance comes in our very own hearts, where our flesh resists this message of the gospel. But I think the best news of our passage is found in verse 20. Verse 20 says this, says, despite all this, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What this this verse tells us is that God is bigger than any obstacle that the world or our own souls may put in his way. No hurdle is too high for God. No bondage is too great and even no sin is too far from the reach of his forgiveness because the gospel overcomes all the barriers that we or the world can place in front of it. Why? Because it bears the very power of God in its message. Lately, I've been uh, reading a book called Severe Mercy. I know some of you uh, have read this book before. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce the author's name, so I'm not going to try. But it's an it's a, it's a autobiographical story ab- about a man and uh, his wife, about how uh, they met, with one, met one another, how they fell in love with one another, how they found Christ in their relationship, and ultimately uh, how death parted them from each other. But the section that I'm reading right now is about uh, after they've fallen in love and and now how they're beginning to uh, start to be intrigued by the message of Jesus Christ. And uh, it talks about how every opposition that they tended to put in the way from them coming into a relationship with Jesus, that God seemed to just step in and systematically dismantle every little opposition that was put in the way. In fact, they began to to use the name for God that uh, I think it was an English poet used for him. They called him the Hound of Heaven, who continued to pursue them and dismantle every roadblock they tended to put in the way of the gospel. Friends, this is the power of this message. This is the power of the gospel. Imagine for a second that uh, your child or someone close to you uh, sadly contracted some sort of deadly disease. But you knew that the cure was out there. What would you do? You would probably move heaven and earth, do everything in your power that you could to get your hands on that cure so that you could cure that person who you loved most. No obstacle would be too great for you to overcome. Well, the gospel tells us that God the Father knew that the only way to cure the deadly disease of sin that you and I have contracted was through the perfect sacrifice of his very own son. And in Christ's perfect sacrifice on our behalf, he provided the cure for the disease of sin that you and I bear. He didn't even allow the obstacle of sin and death to get in his way so that he could secure a relationship with you and I. Friends, don't let any obstacle get in the way of you finding life in a relationship with Jesus Christ. For those of you that have found life in a relationship with Jesus Christ, know that the temptation every day is to try to find life in other sources. It's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves because you and I chase after all sorts of Artemises in our own hearts every day. It's why we need to preach the gospel every day to wake up and remind ourselves that the only true source of life is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it's no surprise that Artemis in our passage was the goddess of fertility. And what that meant in the ancient culture is if you wanted to find life, you would go and worship Artemis. Well, it's no surprise that the gospel message meets in the city of Ephesus in such a powerful way this very thinking. Because what Paul said then, is just as true for you and I today. The only true source of life is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ.